Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The best way I can say it, it feels like when it's working well, it almost feels like there's a little bit more of a buffer between, even even as I'm more present on things I want to be present on, there's more of a buffer between me and the things that are annoying. (laughs) From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Okay, it's a special edition of the 10% Happier podcast. We uh, recorded this uh, just yesterday, so we're posting it on a Wednesday, recorded it on a Tuesday, and uh, we're doing it on such a short timeline because the guest is George Stephanopoulos, who is the co-anchor of Good Morning America and the anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. So uh, as you are starting to gather, he's a pretty busy dude, and he's going to be anchoring our inauguration coverage on ABC News all day on Friday. So we want to talk to him about uh, inauguration coverage, what it's like to do that, and not for nothing, he's a daily, a twice daily uh, meditator. So his experience with meditation is fascinating. His his forecasts as we head into what is going to be for sure a, a, a an extremely interesting uh, four years will be of uh, high interest to everybody, I think. So here you are. Here's George Stephanopoulos. How are you doing? Are we on the air? We're on the air. That's fun. We're on the internets. It's such a gentle, gentle entrance. Yeah, it's it's not like being in a studio with like no. a red light and everything goes crazy. <laughs> yes. I should explain to everybody what we're doing. Um, this is a special edition for innumerable reasons. I'm honored. Because you're on. That's one reason why it's special. And also we're doing it live on Facebook So right. and on abcnews.com. Um, I should say for the like 0.01% of humanity who doesn't know who you are, you've been a household name since the 90s. Um, and I've been honored to call you a colleague since 2000 when I joined and you were here since I started, 98. I came in 97. 97. Uh, I get 20 years. I'm 20 years on Inauguration Day. Wow, really? Congratulations. My first day was the inauguration of uh, Bill Clinton's second term. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, so you are uh, also, just so everybody knows, the chief anchor here at ABC News, which I guess makes you my boss on some level. And Hardly. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, certainly somebody I look up to, for sure, and who's been uh, a great advisor to me at many points in my career. And you're a meditator, so let's start with that. This yeah. is this is uh, this is uh, a, a podcast ostensibly about meditation. Although in this in this case, I think we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. That's your jumping off point. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It, it always sort of gets into strange areas. So, how did you start meditating? I, I had some friends who've been. Well, I should take. It's a longer story than that. Go for um, it. I first um, I first thought about it. Got into it back when I was in the Clinton White House. So this was back in the uh, early 1990s. And uh, I, had, I had some friends who were deep believers in it, um, Transcendental Meditation, TM. And uh, now I was, at the time, at first, even though I trusted these friends, quite reluctant because my, my one hook in with TM was through this um, university they have out in, in Iowa. Yeah. Which, which, uh, uh, right. You must have run across it as a campaigner. And at the time, uh, John Hagelin, who's a you know brilliant man, I was, I think, thinking about running for president maybe in 1996, and I ended up having some sort of meeting, and, you know... Wait, who's John Hagelin? He's the head of that university. Okay, Uh, gotcha. Which is the Maharishi University? Yeah, I I don't know the exact name, and he's a physicist. Um, But they had some ideas about how, like, if everybody just meditated at the same time, we'd have world peace. Yes, yes. kind of a little out there. Yeah. Um, And... Uh, so I, I had some questions based on that, but I did try, and a, and a friend um, gave me a mantra and, and taught me. It just didn't take, and I don't know what it was about 
my my life at the time or my state of mind at the time, my spirit at the time. I couldn't keep it going. Can, can I just ask you, were yeah. your friends who were into TM, Transcendental Meditation, were they uh, political folks, Hollywood folks, just personal life? You know, the person is that, the, the one person who was really who really taught me was kind of was from California, but a political type, but it just a a wholly different kind of cat. I'm <laughs> just gotcha. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. um, interesting, lovely man. Okay. Um, and this time around, I had uh, this was now I guess about five years ago. Um, I'm friends with Jerry Seinfeld, who's been I guess meditating since he was 17. Really? Yeah. Oh, long I didn't time, know it's been that long, 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 wow. long time. And we were talking about it, and um, we were just having a conversation, and he convinced me to try again. And um, Were you stressed at that point in your life? Was there something going on? You know, I was uh, exhausted. I, had been, I was about three years into GMA anchoring, uh, still doing this week many, many, many Sundays, two young girls, and anybody who's done GMA everybody, every day will tell you, you never really get used mm-hmm. to the schedule, even though, like, if, even if you're a morning person like me, it's a physically grueling job. You just, for a million reasons, it's hard to get more than five hours sleep a night, five or six, generally. Um, six is good. Six is <laughs> fantastic. And part of the, you know, what we were talking about, and part of the way, and I read about it at the time, and met with the head of the David Lynch Foundation, Bob Roth, who's just a, an amazing teacher, an amazing man. And he helped convince me that it would just, um, you know, take all the metaphysics out of it and just focus on the health and stress benefits. And I thought about that and tried it and spent my four hours with Bob over four days and haven't missed a day since. Okay, so can you, for the uninitiated, what is Transcendental Meditation? How does it work? Uh, what it is is I, you are given a mantra and— Just a word you repeat to yourself silently. A sound is what they call it. It's okay. Actually, it's, a, it's, it's a sound. Um, you repeat to yourself silently and simply try to focus on that mantra for 20 minutes twice a day. Um, what ends up, what I think ends up working, and actually I can't explain why it works. All I can tell you is that I was surprised. I was skeptical. And from the moment I understood the practice, and it doesn't take long to learn, I could feel the benefits. Um, now, what it is, is you're, you, you focus on the sound. Now, everybody says, oh, I can't. First of all, what are the objections? I don't have 20 minutes a day. 40 um, minutes a day. Well, 40 minutes a day. Yeah. I don't have 20 minutes twice a day. My schedule's too crazy. And I can't get these thoughts out of my head. My mind is always racing, no matter how much I try to focus on the mantra. I think the genius, for me at least, of this practice is that the first tenet is to accept the fact that your mind is always going to be mm-hmm. racing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when it happens, you accept it and move on and just try to bring your mind uh, back back to the mantra. What I can tell you what it feels like when it's happening is a a combination of dreaming, sleeping, resting, um, clarity, all at the same time. Now, to varying degrees at different times, again, one of the other things that Bob especially taught me is that even on days when it doesn't feel like you're getting much out of the meditation, something is happening. Um, and, you know, I guess the analogy he uses, even whenever... Uh, even if you only go 
put your toes in the water, you're going to get a little bit wet. Mm-hmm. So any, any, any day that uh, doesn't feel perfect, you don't stress about that uh, either. What I found is that the practice, the discipline, is something I end up looking forward to uh, for that twice a day. And in my mind and in my life, the taking the 40 minutes out of my day ends up, it feels like to me, like it's adding four hours to my day. How is that? Um, because of the, the rest I feel, how, how much more rested I feel after doing it. Um, the uh, sort of um, confidence I feel coming out of it, the groundedness. I have to, this is just an aside, but something maybe you'd relate to as a broadcaster. I find um, both on GMA and especially when I have to do special events like the inaugural coming up or any kind of breaking news, so much of what uh, you have to do is sort of just be present in the moment to what is actually happening and be clear about that and try to communicate that. I find it much easier to be at peace with where I am and open and um, very present without having my thoughts get in the way of all that because of the practice of meditation. It almost feels like you get plugged back into that twice a day. Um, Can I just elaborate on that yeah. for a second? Because I, I really do relate to that. And I think it's as important not only for broadcasters, but uh, obviously Life, for the two know? of us. <laughs> but yes, you are. this is an exercise. This is a focusing exercise. Now, I do a different kind of meditation. You do transcendental mm-hmm. meditation. I do mindfulness or Buddhist meditation, however you want to describe it. But they're both training the mind for very similar things. And really, you've got this mantra, this sound you're repeating to yourself, and then when you get lost, you start again. And in mindfulness, it's just you're feeling what the breath feels like when it comes in and goes out, and when you get lost, you start again. What that trains you to do is to be awake for your actual life and to break out of this fog of rumination and projection in which most of us operate all the time, an autopilot. And so when you're broadcasting live, it's very helpful to actually be paying attention to what's happening right now because then your reactions to your co-anchors are more spontaneous, your reaction to the news of the world is more genuine and spontaneous, uh, as opposed to thinking 10 moves ahead, which is what I was always doing. What I was always doing my whole life uh, as well, and at varying times in my life, I struggled more with anxiety, and this has certainly helped with that. A very particular thing as well on this, um, again, going back to the sleep part of this, uh, for many years, I and it was exacerbated at times with GMA. It was worse in the White House, but exacerbated at times on GMA. I had the kind of insomnia where I could fall asleep fine, but um, I would wake up constantly during the night worried about how much time I had left to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, the beauty for me of TM and doing it, I do it First thing when I wake up in the morning. Which is at what time? 2.30. Wow. Um, But I'm getting up at 2.30 knowing I'm going to get better quality rest than the last hour of my sleep. I mean, I just – or I've convinced myself of that and I do believe it's true. So it's like a bonus. (laughs) So you wake up and you're excited to wake up. Well, not <laughs> but most I'm excited to wake up so I can go get some more rest, I guess. Yes, that's but, what I'm yeah. saying. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's nice when you wake up, your eyes don't uh, pop open. And, you and you're not panicked. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I'm really surprised to hear you say, just because we've worked together for a long time, um, you said that you dealt with some anxiety in parts of your life. I was unaware of that, and I would never have guessed that based on just my observation of you. You seem very sort of focused and confident. 
Well, that's the trick, right? Yeah. <laughs> my mother has an expression. My mother has this expression up on her wall that says the most important thing about acting is sincerity. Since if right. you can fake that, you got it made. Uh, so maybe that's what's going on. No, but also I think it's. It, I think I have. Um, you know, I don't want to tempt the fates here. I think in some ways I've grown out of. Uh, grown out of it a little bit. I think it's always part of you and some of it is physical, genetic. And um, But I, I've learned more about it, learned how to deal with it. And the meditation helps a lot. So you do the first one at 2.30 in the morning. When's the second one you do? Second one is I have kind of a weird day. I mean, so then I, I, go to, I work from about 3.30, 3, 3.15, 3.30 till about 9.15. And then I take a break. I go home. I uh, work out. And I generally meditate after that before what is sort of the second part of my day, which is where I do more of my other duties here at ABC, work on my Sunday show, that kind of thing. That's a long day, every day. And then you work a lot of Sundays, too. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm home for dinner every night. Um, and, you know, I can I have a fair amount of freedom with how I structure my day. Um, and every day is a little bit different. But, you know, most afternoons, unless something breaks – or unless we're going to a thing like the inaugural where I end up having a lot of meetings dealing with that. When, I, when I'm working, it's mostly reading things and talking to people about things that I care about and I'm interested in. So I guess that's a blessing that that's my job. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. So what would you say other than sort of being a little bit more, to, to use an annoying cliche, present? Um, also more patient. Yeah. Okay. So what Yeah, are, de- definitely that. Um, patient in what way? Uh like with your kids, your um, definitely that, and I, the best way I can say it, 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 it feels like when it's working well, and that, that's, nobody's perfect. I still have moments like anybody else. Uh, it almost feels like there's a little bit more of a buffer between even even as I'm more present on things I want to be present on. There's more of a buffer between me and the things that are annoying <laughs> in the world, and the kind of you know I can sort of uh, take a beat before they. Either maybe not before they affect me because everything affects you, but before I ra- react to it. So, yeah, there's a cliche that I, I hate cliches, but I love this one, um, which is that meditation teaches you how to respond instead of react. Oh, I didn't know. That's so, a great way of putting it. It's an, it's an amazing way to put it. And that, to me, is the sell. When I have, and I evangelize for meditation all the time. Um, that's the value add for a normal life, which is that we, you most of us are yanked around by this ego, this voice in our head. And we are eating when we're not hungry or we're losing my te- our temper when it's unwise or uh, checking our email in the middle of conversations with our kids or whatever. And uh, this is what helps you. Meditation, this training helps you not do that some percentage of the time. Maybe I think 10%. that's right. And there's something, I guess, also just about um, – I guess there's something about the discipline, the practice that reminds you you are in control of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, that you can, you know, you can make the choice for how you're going to respond as opposed to react to things that are happening around you. Absolutely. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. The mm-hmm. other powerful thing is that I think most of us think of happiness as contingent upon exogenous factors, you know, uh, your work life, your home life, uh, childhood, all of which are super important. But in fact, actually, happiness is a skill. And that's what the science around meditation is showing us, that you can work your mind the way you can work your body in the gym. It's not going to work all the time. You can't make, I can't make myself into Kobe Bryant, but I can make myself the fittest version of mm-hmm. me that is available. And the same thing is true with your head. And, and, and the ceiling is much higher. You know, I mean, 
we, you, the mind is not is not um, subject to as many sort of gravitational forces no, as and the yeah, body. And that goes all that goes back to what Aristotle, who you know, taught you virtuous habits make a difference by practicing virtuous habits. You may become virtuous. Absolutely, fake it till you make it. I mean, yeah. and I actually, you know, or uh, there's a quote that I, podcast listeners will know because uh, I use it all the time, which is the, it's attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but I'm not sure it's true that he said it, which is. Uh, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That's my religion. And that yeah. is a game-changing proposition. And what meditation allows you to do is to see more clearly how bad it feels when you're an idiot. I think that's right. I think that's right. So we uh, we brought up Abraham Lincoln. That's a good segue. <laughs> Second inaugural, best speech in American history. Right? So, uh, <laughs> so but the first inaugural uh, includes the phrase the "better, better angels, angels of our right, nature," yeah. and the second one is the uh, with chords malice. Of memory. Yes, yeah. yes, with mystic chords of memory, with malice toward none and charity toward all. If, if Terry Moran is here, were here, he'd be able to recite the whole thing for us. This is ABC's <laughs> Terry Moran, who is a genius. Um, uh, so I, they're both pretty great speeches. Uh, I'm not sure that I would pick one over the no. other. But they're both up there. I mean, I think... Uh, and they're short. Yeah. I mean, is it is it the second inaugural is especially short, right? Yeah, it's I mean, pretty it's short. Like, maybe less than a page. It's less than a page. I was reading it last night um, because uh, it came up in the briefing book that you and I are both reading right. to prepare for the inauguration. It's like seven or eight paragraphs. Yeah. And we'll see if... Uh, how much beyond that Donald Trump goes. <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> Although you never know. I mean, he's never given a short speech. His 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 acceptance speech was quite long. He's his most gracious speeches have been after victories. We'll see if that um, happens on on uh, on Friday. But I mean, everything else about this says that this is going to be an inaugural unlike any we've ever seen before, because it's coming after a campaign unlike anything we've ever seen before, and likely a presidency unlike any we've ever seen before. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. How has this campaign been for you in terms of stress levels and what do you project going forward? Uh, and when I say you, I mean you and journalists like you who are at tip of the spear dealing with the players. Um. Well, I thought a lot about that. I mean, so like just about everybody, I was surprised by the result. Um, I think that looking back, I think uh, we it's forced us all to reevaluate how we do our jobs. Um, I think this is, this is a particular challenge. Um, and it was in some ways, you know, particularly frustrating in some ways because um, I think I interviewed uh, the president-elect some like 48, 49 times 
over the course of the campaign, including on his first day. And he's clearly skilled at communications in some ways, but it was also, you know, frankly, a challenge in that the kinds of, I believe, I can only speak for myself, that um, all through that, I was pretty vigilant about call, you know, pressing him when he was saying something that was at odds with the facts, uh, when he was saying something untrue, uh, trying to clarify for the audience, press him for details on what his plans were, question him about some of his more um, cruel and outrageous statements and actions, um, you know, press him as we would any politician have with any politician on contradictions between things he's saying now and things he may have done in the past. And, you know, one of the things we saw is that uh, if someone is determined to sort of bull through that, they can have some fair amount of success doing that. I think you know, sort of that forces us to sort of reevaluate how we do our jobs. The conventional ways we cover campaigns, I think, in some ways, failed the process. What What do you think we need to change? How do we change? I guess. Um, I think first off, it just takes more time. Uh, you know, we're sort of constrained on our broadcast, but it takes more time to. Uh, if you're not going to get satisfactory answers or uh, it takes more time to show why you're not getting them or it takes more time to clarify what is actually happening uh, and, 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 and to tease out what the effects might be on, on people who are watching. Um, I think it means sometimes being willing to uh, step outside of this, again, convention of um, – where that balanced journalism always means simply putting up one voice from one side and one voice from another and letting people make up their own minds. Because sometimes there the are objective is. facts. They're objective, yeah, often. Climate change, yeah, for there, example. Yeah, I mean, there, yeah. there are, there, there is. And we have to be willing to step in and say, this is actually a fact. Yes. Even though we're facing a real challenge in that more and more. People don't care. People don't care or don't believe it. Yes. And, and, and they don't believe us. They, they don't, don't trust no, us. They don't trust us. And then you're living in a world where you, anyone can simply find a way to you know, sort of ferret out the facts that bolster what they already believe. And most people tend to do it. And even if that isn't true, it's not going to make uh, – it, it's not going to mean that us presenting what we consider – even I just fell into it right there – what we consider – the facts um, is is going to be persuasive. Persuasive? No, there are actually there are many issues where there are facts. Not every single one, but there are many issues where you can just say this is factual. This is actually happening, and we should be willing to stand up and say that. But so, in some ways, it seems to me like our only option is just to play our game. You know, like we play it better. Yeah, absolutely. Up our game, but play it. We can't change society. We can't change the fact that we may be living in a post-fact era, all we can do is report the facts as evenly as we possibly can. And and, 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 and and sort of say at one level, the rest is not our business. That's what we have to do. But we will also be willing to take some of the blowback that is inevitably going to come with that uh, as well. And well, I mean, and that's what I was getting at before when I asked about how this campaign was for you and how you think the next four years will be for you. Do you take a lot of blowback and is that stressful for you? Uh, you know, you said it at the beginning and uh, I've I've been a public figure now for unfortunately going a long time probably ninety two yeah ninety two really yeah. ninety one ninety two so that's twenty five twenty six years um, I stopped paying attention to 
not all of it. I'm you know human being. Like you hit sometimes you it, when it's when it hits a, a huge volume, you know it. Um, but I mostly f- I filter out almost all of that every single day. I don't I don't read Twitter. I don't read comments. I don't. Um, I'm not on social media. I'm not on. You know, I know we're on Facebook right now. I'm not on <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> um, I kind of do my job, live my life, and you know I f- obviously there are times when. Either I've made a mistake or I've got to correct something or I'm getting hit in an especially egregious way where if it's something I have to deal with, somebody tells me. Is meditation useful on this front? And will it, it be useful going forward, you think? Well, I just think in the sense that I'm you know, more calm overall, sure. Yeah. Do you think um, – you know, in, in my world, because I'm in the meditation world so deeply, there's a – it can be a little um, – Culty? Uh, actually – not really, but like I'm, I'm in the secular mindfulness world. It's not necessarily culty, but it can be a little uh, utopian in the sense that w- you hear people talking about it being the answer to all. Well, that's a, problems. that's. A, I mean, and some I haven't. I, I say no to like ninety nine percent of interviews about this. Yeah. Because I, r- resisting that, there's no way. I'm what I'm saying now is honest, and if I was talking to a friend, I would be very honest. But there's no way to talk about it in a way that doesn't make you sound. Like a Pollyannish um, evangelizer. Well, Even, I think there is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's hard. But you really, I mean, I spent four years writing this stupid book and it's thinking about- It's an excellent about, book. It's not a stupid you, book. Thank you. You were actually <laughs> an early and vocal supporter, which, for which I will be eternally grateful. Um, but I, I, think there's a, I think it's hard to do. It's a real challenge. I catch myself when I'm doing it. Well, my rule is I never talk to anybody about it unless they ask well, me. Well, absolutely. So there's that. And I, I do podcasts or write a book or whatever, but I put it out. But you don't have to download it or listen to it. I'm not forcing you to do anything. It, But, like, my wife doesn't meditate, and I don't it lecture about it. Okay, so there, that's a pretty good piece of data. But I do think it's possible to talk about it as a form of mental exercise that's useful to you. It's not going to fix the whole world. But uh, and hence the whole 10% happier shtick. That doesn't come off as culty, I think. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I think yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're right. It's just it's more the way I fear that I sound mm. when I'm talking about it. Well, but but just getting back to this utopian idea that in my world, because I am now sort of so deep, much more deeply immersed in the meditation world than I was even before I wrote, even when I was writing the book, because I'm now this kind of like public figure within this little world. Um, but I do, I do find myself actually getting into the a more utopian bent in that I feel like as we enter this divided era, even more divided era in American politics, we've been divided for a while. Actually, this kind of mental exercise could be useful, whatever form oh, you well, take. But, but there's a difference between useful and utopian. I completely yes. agree that yes. it's useful. I mean, I, I, I'm deeply anti-utopian. I think, I guess I believe in original sin. I believe we're all flawed human beings, not perfectible. I don't think meditation can make you anywhere close to a perfect human being. It just gives you some tools to deal with your imperfections. Um, And that's just, I think, the human condition. Now, that said, does it mean we can make things a little bit better? Absolutely. And if you can make even your own life a little bit better, that's got to have ripple effects starting right there. Well, absolutely on an individual level, but I, where I start, and I don't think it's utopian. I, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm not a utopian, but I do think that you can start to have a societal impact. Just think about this. If, if the percentage of Americans who currently work out were now meditating, 
that would actually have an impact on behavior in the well, world. You and, and, and to give props to the David Litch Foundation, which you know, I, I, he's headed by Bob Roth, who I learned from, they're now branching out in ways that are, I think are, are fantastic. They're, they're in schools they're in Chicago. They're going to schools absolutely. and here, here yes. in New York yeah. City. They're going, they've, they've petitioned the Veterans Department in Washington, D.C., and they're working with veterans dealing with PTSD. And it shows that you know, they believe will show a measurable impact in helping people deal with that. Women who've been the victims of, 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 of sexual abuse or other kinds of trauma, they've gone into centers to help deal with that as well. I think that it can be a huge um, supplement to traditional counseling, medical attention, education. Now, um, Bob Roth is a guy I know, I know a little bit now because we had lunch a few months ago and we emailed uh, quite a bit, um, who I, uh, I agree with you. He's, he's a, a really smart and nice guy. Um, but, you know, something that he and I have talked about, and I wonder how, what your thoughts are about it, is that TM has such an interesting history because it is a sectarian organization. And it was headed by this charismatic guru, uh, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the guru to the Beatles and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And he talked about some things that are a little out there, like the you know world peace and you know, give you the strength of an elephant, et cetera, et cetera. How do you deal with that? I don't even think about ignore it. Ignore it completely. Completely ignore yes. it. Um, like I said, for me, going in, all of that background, which I've been exposed to a little bit many, 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 many years ago, um, I just block it off. Doesn't doesn't affect my practice in any way, something I've never really thought about uh, like I said, I'm, I'm not into the, the 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 metaphysics behind it that helps that is useful to some other people. It's something I just don't pay any attention to. In the same way, I don't know if this will get me in in trouble. I, I also pa- practice only once a week um, Bikram yoga. Mm-hmm. Lots of questions about the guy who started that yeah. as well. I I don't like that. Um, I don't endorse it in any way. But the practice to me, in and of itself, is useful. Yeah, no, I think it's a fair argument. I don't know much about the Bikram thing, but on the TM side, uh, and I think Bob's done a really good job of saying, hey, take or leave whatever's absolutely. going on. It's one over of the here. first things he said yeah, to me. Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly enough, you know, uh, TM comes out of a Hindu background. Yeah. And uh, I practice. Mindfulness comes out of a Buddhist, Buddhist background. background. Exactly. One of the things that the Buddha himself said to people, which I find deeply reassuring, is, hey, I'm going to talk about a few metaphysical things, including rebirth and enlightenment, et cetera, et cetera. Take it or leave it. Oh, I didn't know that. Do the practice. Yeah, his, his idea is this is exercise for you. This is a kind of therapy, a kind of medicine. Uh, do it and see for yourself. And I find that, I mean, like, this is why you find a lot of scientists, et cetera, who are interested in Buddhism. In fact, uh, Robert Wright, who's an evolutionary psychologist, I believe I'm getting his title right, um, is about to book, come out with a book called Why Buddhism is the Truth. And I think he, it's a small, it's a oh, not a capitalized it, yeah. T, you know. Uh, it's more like, yeah, this thing is true. And, yeah, there are parts of it I don't like, but you don't have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, the truth is, well, there are an, and many layers to the truth. The, the truth is you can train your mind and you don't – it's what we were talking about before. Um, anyway, before I let you go, just some more about the politics here. Give us a sense of what your day is like on Inauguration Day. What is it like for you? Um, well, we'll find out. This will be my first one for ABC was back in 1997 in a very different role. Uh, this will be my uh, – I guess my third one no. Second one anchoring, um, and I, I hope not to make the mistake I made uh, last time around. You know, you, there's a lot of uh, name checking and identification of people in the crowd. Mm. And last time around, um, in a quick moment, and I took it back so quickly, but uh, I identified um, Bill Russell as Morgan Freeman. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's 
Sports Radio had a field day yeah. with, with, with that one. Gotcha. But, it, but, but what the day is, uh, it starts, uh, I may actually sleep in a, an hour later than normal because I know it's going to be a long day coming out. Um, but I so, uh, 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 a lion until 3.30. 3.30 or 4, we'll see. <laughs> uh, maybe even a little later. But GMA is 7. We'll do GMA from 7 to 9. Yeah. Um, and then really starting at 8.30, when you you start to, to stream live as well, GMA kind of morphs into a special event. And we'll just start anchoring the coverage following all the different activities of the day, starting with, you know, the church service that the president-elect Trump will go to uh, in the morning, uh, that coffee at the White House where he meets with the first family for the – uh, first time in the White House, well, I guess the second time he's met with Obama. Um, that car ride with the two men uh, to Capitol Hill, and of course the ceremony where he takes the oath. And then there's kind of a lull when, when the president-elect goes into lunch with the Senate and the House, and we more or less talk about the day. Uh, the next public event that we'll kind of narrate and follow is the departure of President Obama sort of mid-afternoon to Andrews Air Force Base, where he flies out uh, for the last time on the plane they, that is generally called Air Force One when the president rides in. I think this one is going to be called, but it's special air mission. This will probably be 29,000. The last one was 28,000. 28, and then we cover the parade and we'll stay on, I think, through president, like, the president's uh, entrance in the White House where he may be signing some more executive orders. He may sign them earlier at the Capitol and we'll probably be on about 4 or 5 in the afternoon. And when when... When we look at you doing this, are you having fun? Are you tired? Are you nervous? What What is this like for you as an experience? It's so, I, I like the. I think the best part of our jobs is dealing with real news happening in real time, covering special events. I think it's a great privilege to have the chance to do it. I love the craft of anchoring a program like that and trying to weave together uh, twenty five different contributors with a story that is actually happening in real time and bring a sense of to our viewers of what is happening, the history behind it, the context, the personalities. For me, that's that's fun. I mean, that I you know, people talk about flow and fun, and when uh, fun is the definition, when you sort of lose track of time. I don't even notice the time going by on nights like on days like the inaugural, nights like an election night. It's all happening um, both very slowly and very quickly at the same time. I think again, going back to the meditation, something about that helps me sort of uh, slow everything down while I'm talking about it and bringing people in. But the day just flies right by. Yeah. Then I'm exhausted. Yeah, at the end end of the day. What do you think it's going to be like for President Obama? You you did this amazing interview with him that aired this past Sunday, I believe. Was it this past Sunday or was it 10 days ago? Um, His his exit interview, one of his final interviews uh, in the White House, you did this incredible walk from from the the residence to the Oval. It was amazing. And uh, and also, you see... Watching you do it, knowing your experience in the White House, actually, for me, just lent it another layer. But he's going to be in a limo with a guy who campaigned on essentially shredding his legacy. Every single bit of it. Right. Who he, who he, President Obama, said time and time again through the course of the campaign was dramatically unqualified by both experience and temperament to be president of the United States, who said many times during the campaign to his supporters, everything we fought for is gone. This man gets elected, yet he has to, out of reverence for the office, uh, for our democracy, uh, feels a great responsibility to treat him with civility and not say exactly what he thinks, 
about what's going on. Um, although he did also say, in my interview, that the election of, of, of Trump, which he did not see coming, he conceded that clearly, um, has probably changed how he's going to what he's going to do after he leaves office. I think he'll be a little bit more involved than he planned uh, to be. Even to the point of, you know, one of our special events tomorrow, he's going to do a press conference tomorrow. <laughs> kind of late in the game to do a press conference, but it is going to be his farewell press conference. We'll see how much of um, how much he bites on on some of the more difficult questions that might come his way. Certainly his, I don't know if you saw right before we walked in here, his uh, his press secretary, Josh Ernest, gave his final press conference. He didn't hold back at all. What do you say? I missed uh, well, it. Well, it he, he took on what President Putin said today about um, the hacking and, and Trump and said that it seemed like Putin was reading the, the incoming administration's talking points. So that's – And do you have any window in any visibility into Trump's state of mind as he goes into, into Friday? Um, is he excited, nervous? I don't know. Does he get nervous? I've seen him a little bit nervous before. How can you uh, – how can you not be? Um, I mean, that's one of the other things. President Obama, who uh, doesn't show his nerves very often, yeah. conceded. He said, listen, he said, that minute before I went out and gave the inaugural, the first time before I took the oath, I was scared. Yeah. He said, I didn't want to screw this up. He said, even Kennedy was the same way. I have to believe that at some level that will hit uh, President Trump as well. And I think we saw a tiny tick of that. In that first meeting he had with President Obama on the what was the Wednesday after the election, maybe mm-hmm. it was Thursday. Even in his posture, in that he was yeah. a sobered man. Yeah, he, yeah. he seemed to bounce back pretty quickly. But that I thought that was a pretty telling tableau. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. 
Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you wanna understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.